Would you please um, turn off your cell phones? I want to uh, ask a question. How many of you here remember Stephanie Warfield? All right. Um, Stephanie Warfield is now a, I think she's retired, although she's still working too. You'll hear about working retired people in a minute. Um, Stephanie kind of grew up in this church. She became, um, an, as I said, uh, ordained interfaith uh, minister. She's traveled all over the world, married a man from Iraq. Um, now lives in Austin, did live in Sweden. And um, I contacted her and asked her if she would come and dialogue with me here next Sunday. So she, Stephanie Warfield will be here next Sunday to do that. And those of you who held your hand up and remember her, you might remember that Stephanie designed the very first logo for Ordinary Life. And I'll show that to you um, next week. So anyway. Uh, Lauren and um, Joshua, thank you for what you do for making this possible. So I don't have a bowl here today, so let's just um, let's begin in silence, and then um, you just do what you need to do to get here. Bring yourself into your body. And we give thanks for everything that had to happen for us to share this time together. And my hope for those of you who are here is that you find what you came looking for out of this time today. So for the past several uh, Sundays, I have been sharing with you a um, prayer that I adapted from an old Gaelic prayer. And it is uh, grace be in my head and in my thinking, grace be in my eyes and in my seeing, grace be in my ears and in my hearing, grace be in my mouth and in my speaking, grace be in my heart and in my understanding, and grace be in my end and in my departing. So it's an old Gaelic prayer. And um, I'm doing this because several people have asked me to elaborate at some point on some specifics about what it means to have a daily spiritual practice. And um, so this is one of, the, one of the prayers that I begin with every day. Um, and there's another, and this I want to share with you very briefly. This cycles in and out of my own daily spiritual practice. It's a prayer that I got decades ago from Thomas Merton. And uh, it, it is um, like this. <clears throat> My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, 
though I may know nothing about it. Therefore I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. That's a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. And uh, it's a great prayer for me in this particular time of transition. So um, I offer it to you. It'll be in uh, the summary, uh, whatever that summary is going to look like uh, when it goes out on Tuesday. And it'll be on the website so that you can go and um, find it there. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. And uh, this is the last time I'm going to remind you we have a rare opportunity Wednesday night in this space to hear Kate Bowler. Um, um, we'll finish her book before Wednesday night uh, on um, thing, everything happens for a reason and other lies I have loved. So I think you will, um, you will like that book. So I think St. Paul's has more retired clergy in its attendance than any church I know. Is that, would you agree with that? At one point there were 42. 32. Whoa. That's what Jim Bankston told me the first time I retired. Well, Dr. Jim Bankston is a member of the steering committee for this class. He's, he attends here, and when he's here on Sunday, he's usually teaching. So um, I know that. Uh, we have a presence that used to sit on the front row, but is now joining us uh, live stream, uh, Tom Doherty. Who I'm sure you know Tom is a great clinical pastoral education trainer supervisor, and uh, he was appointed to be my mentor, and we've become best friends when I moved my ordination into the United Methodist Church. So um, our speaker today is the Reverend uh, Barbara Roberson, and I'm going to let her tell you about herself. But one of the things that wins her a blue ribbon, in my opinion is that she began her ministry through the door of clinical pastoral education. And if I had a magic wand, there would be no clergy in any church who served in any capacity who did not have that background. Amen. So, uh, Barbara, thank you for being here today and for um, taking a load off my feet for this time. And I love you for being willing to do this. Thank, thank you. you. Barbara Robertson. <clears throat> Am I on? Am I on? Well, thank you for inviting me, Bill. You all have to know, I have to confess first, right? My response. This call comes in the middle of the afternoon last week, and I don't recognize the number, and I never answer the phone if I don't answer the, recognize the number, and something in me answered and the voice very loudly, as you can imagine, said, Barbara, this is Bill. <laughs> and I thought, Bill who? <laughs> Bill Curley. And then he went on to say that he was going to take a few weeks off. He had just left Jeff's office. And would I teach on October 20? Is that what today is? Because when you're retired, you never know what day it is, right? <laughs> October 23rd. And I said no at first, didn't I? I was very reluctant. I said, you've got to be kidding. Because I had been in your class for two weeks. First week, I didn't understand anything, he said. <laughs> Second week, a woman helped him, so I began to understand. 
And I thought, heck, his shoes are so big, I can't fill them. But in the last few days, I realized my feet are just fine in my shoes. And thank you. Because in this time of preparation, which has been only about nine days, I had not told my story for a very long time. So I had to work at it. And I had to write. And I had to dig out all my old journals and read. And I not only connected with the God of the journey, but I connected with people. Oh my gosh, there are so many companions on the journey that I had forgotten about. I went to a funeral on Wednesday at St. Luke's. St. Luke's is where I came into the Methodist Church. And there were so many people there who companioned me because I had no clue where I was going or what I was doing. And it was also a God thing that he read the Thomas Merton prayer because that's in my purse. And I read it every day. Because still, at age 80, I have no clue where I'm going. So the journey never ends, right? You have to be aware. You have to listen. You have to use your eyes to see. But thank you for allowing me to come aware of the beauty of the journey, the gift of the journey, as crazy as it may be. So I want to open by reading from Genesis 11. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his son Abram's wife Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans for the land of Canaan. But when they arrived in Haran, they settled there. And Terah lived 205 years, oh my God, and he died in Haran. And the Lord said to Abram, leave your land your family, your father's household for the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse and all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. 4,000 years ago. A family of nomads left the Ur of the Chaldeans, perhaps near Iraq, and settled in Haran, Turkey, on the Syrian border. And the family patriarch died, and his son Abram started hearing voices. And in time, Abram believed the voices in the very call of Yahweh, and he dared to obey. Leave your country. Leave your people, your family, leave all that you hold dear and go to a land I will show you. He set out in faith, not knowing where he was going or even why he was going except that Yahweh had commanded him. I think he had Thomas Merton's prayer in his pocket. The heavy curtains of a far distant time part unlikely stage those in a little country place called Ur. Today, Ur is just a desert scrubland with miserable ruins jutting from a train of sand and mud. It's about 120 miles northwest of the Persian Gulf in the country we now call Iraq. Unlikely or not, nearly 40 centuries ago, God pushed one person 
on a journey that transcended history and whose art stretched a crescent of hope and faith so indelibly that determined the motive and course of event for centuries down to this day. Far beyond the borders of the countries in its path, the places we know as Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Jordan. That traveler who undertook a momentous journey with Abraham, claimed today as the physical ancestor and art patriarch and the unity of a great people, though scattered wide, have very long memories of Father Abraham. He was claimed earliest by Jews, tenaciously by Christians, belatedly by Muslims. He traveled 700 miles on foot or camel to the borders of present Iraq, another 700 miles to Syria, another 800 down to Egypt by the inland road, and finally 800 back to Canaan. Richard Rohr wrote in our favorite book, Falling Upwards, there are two major tasks, you've heard it again and again, to human life. The first task is to build a strong container or identity. And the second is to find the contents that the container was meant to hold. When we begin to pay attention, to seek integrity, the tasks within the task, then we begin to move from the first half of life to the second. He set out in faith, not knowing where he was going or even why he was going except Yahweh commanded him. And I'll bet you anything he asked the same questions that Bill has asked us over and over. Who am I and where am I going and what am I to do? I imagine if we took some time this morning, or I'd probably take all day, if we went around the room and everyone told a bit and piece of your journey, you could tell geographic journeys, yes, you probably went away to college. Maybe you travel because of work or you were transferred to another state, another company, joined the armed forces and traveled around the world. But the bigger picture, in each of our lives we've been on journey. You've had this theme in the class, making the sacred journey sacred. And Bill helped me to see that for myself for the first time in many, many years, when he said, well, you teach the class on October 23rd. I must confess that until I was later in my 40s, I thought I was in control of the journey. I mean, I decided where I was going to college, right? I decided who I was going to marry, where we were going to live, how would we raise our children. It was all my idea, right? Here I am at age 80 and realize you were confused, girl. I truly agree with Richard what he says. The first half of life is building the container, and the second half of life is to move beyond and find what the container was supposed to hold. And I confess, I was just a little slow in getting to the second half of my life. So let's start. I was born in Oklahoma only girl of two brothers, my father was a Baptist preacher, and my mother was the perfect June Cleaver, all in Southern Baptist lifestyle. Eventually, my two brothers even followed my father, and they 
are still in their 90s Baptist preachers. Needless to say, I grew up in church. Church, church, church. Sunday morning church, 9 to 12. Sunday night church, 6 to 9. Wednesday night church, 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 church. But the interesting thing is, although I was immersed, yes, literally <laughs> and figuratively, soaked in a faith tradition from the very young age, I struggled to buy all that I heard on a Sunday morning. Now, my father was the superintendent, actually, of the Baptist Children's Home in Oklahoma City. Actually, I had 200 brothers and sisters but I lived a pretty solitary life because my neighborhood on 60 acres of land consisted of very large buildings where all of my little brothers and sisters lived, but I couldn't go knock on the door like you perhaps did in the neighborhood to ask if somebody could come out to play. So I grew up pretty much alone. My closest, dearest friend was the willow tree down the hill from our house. My granddaddy built me a little flooring in that willow tree. I could see out, but nobody could see in. The willow became my sanctuary, my safe place. On Sundays after being screamed and yelled at in church, I would come home, change my clothes, and run to the willow tree so I could rest in her presence and receive the grace and love that my growing child heart needed. She was my safety. She was my holy place. So you can imagine I was a seeker. I was a questioner. I had my understanding of the creator far different from that I was being taught at that Baptist church. I found my God in the smell of the flowers growing under my tree, in the soft wind that blew through her branches, and the birds that were bold enough to sit above me and sing, I found God all around me. I fell in love with creation. And so, of course, when I went off to college, a Baptist college, of course, I became a science major with a plan to work toward med school. And eventually, I had decided I would go off to a uh, Africa as the first Alberta Schweitzer. <laughs> I wanted to put my understanding of love and grace into action and not into beliefs. However, I drank the Kool-Aid of the 50s and 60s, the great myth that women went to college to find a man. I see heads nodding. And if you didn't find your mate in college, boy, poor you. Well, sure enough, I fell in love with a science major, of course. We were married in the 60s. We went off to California in the 60s. Imagine what that was like. Ready for excitement, adventure, and a life far, far away from home, from church, from God as I understood him, and certainly the opposite direction from the life of service I thought I had once dreamed. Life in Pasadena, working at Caltech in research while my husband took his PhD was an adventure beyond my imagination. 
Caltech in the 60s was a place of great achievement in the field of science. I lapped it up along with the partying that went with it. You met Nobel science winners in the hallway all the time. One Nobel Prize winner is the famous Dr. Max Planck. He was German. He won the Nobel Prize for physics. He never wore shoes, barefoot all year long, and coveralls. Actually, my husband, as a little aside, went to the restroom. We were on our way home. He said, wait, let me run to the restroom. He came running out. He says, oh my God, Max Planck is in there. He's on the phone with the Nobel Prize Committee. I mean, that was just everyday life. My dearest friend won two Nobel Prizes. Very few chemists win two Nobel Prizes. His name was Linus Pauling. Wow. Linus was retired, but he came to the lab every day. During his later years, he would come by and stop at my door because I would walk him to the parking lot. I could find his car. He couldn't remember. What a treasure. What a journey. And in the midst of all the fun and partying and the excitement in Pasadena in the 60s, I thought, God, I had left him far back in Oklahoma. But that's foolish, right? You never can leave God behind. We lived in a tiny little cottage there in Pasadena, and outside the cottage door on both sides <clears throat> was the, the biggest gardenia plants I've ever known. I mean, about 10 feet long, three or four feet high. And gardenias in California only bloom in August. When I went out the door on my birthday in April, the smell caught me first, and I looked down to the, my right, and the biggest gardenia I had ever seen was blooming. And I realized that the grace and the love of the willow tree was right there with me in California years later. I had a pretty crappy attitude about God, but that morning I knew God had never left me. But I was still not ready to do the journey, the sacred journey. The journey in science took us eventually to Stanford and then to London. I explored England and Scotland. By then I had two little ones toddling behind me. Exciting days of travel and experiences and still not much thought about walking with God or including my God in the daily life or even our future. And then we got notice of a new job. We were going to return to the States, but we were going to a foreign country to me. Yes, Texas. <laughs> you have to understand that someone who grows up in Oklahoma is never going to live in what we call the cow country, Texas. It was never a part of my plan. But sadly, that's where the job offer came for the man of the house to be on the research faculty at MD Anderson, and we all toddled behind him. And I have lived here ever since. But just as an aside, when Oklahoma plays Texas, you will know <laughs> who I cheer for. Shortly after we returned to the States, we had our third child. 
Having grown up in the church, yes, I did feel that my children needed to have the opportunity to hear and learn the stories and then to eventually make their own decision about God. And so I didn't know anything else to do but join the Baptist church. And we joined West University. Having worked in science all my years previously to our time in England, I was longing to go back to work, but little Amy was only two. The timing was not right, but I needed to work. So I applied to teach at the local day school where my child was going. Well, it just happened to be down four blocks from our house in Bel Air, Bel Air United Methodist Church. I mean, I love children, I love teaching, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, it fit, right? So I went to teach and I taught for two years at Bel Air Methodist Day School. One day it was time for my annual assessment and the director of the day school came into my third grade class, three-year-old classroom and we sat down at those little tiny chairs and the little tiny table and she began my assessment and she said, Barbara, you're a great teacher. The children love you. You play guitar out on the playground, da 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 da. But now you know when you're having a, an appraisal or an evaluation, the but is really scary. And this is what she said I feel deeply that you have the gifts and graces for ministry, and I want you to explore it. Can you imagine how I received that deeply personal message, but coming from way out left field? Shocking. And I was speechless. Now, just as put into your head, this is 1977. Well, life took a few turns because even though grace and love are still shadowing me there on my journey, my marriage was falling apart. I needed a full-time job. I thought I knew my, who I was and what I was to do. I thought I knew what the strong container was, but I certainly didn't have a clue what the container was to hold. I did love and honor what this treasured woman had said to me, and I held her words in my heart. I went back into science. We, our marriage, we had a divorce. I worked at first at Rice, we were there for four years, then we moved our lab over to Baylor College of Medicine. I was struggling with my faith. My children were still active at Westview Baptist. You won't believe it, but I started teaching an adult class. Now, we won't call it a Sunday school class because I wasn't teaching the Bible. And when the people in charge of Westview Baptist heard that I wasn't teaching the Bible, they moved us from the adult education building. In a Baptist church, you have a sanctuary, you have a baptistry. There are stairs up the baptistry where people change to be baptized, and there is a room as far away from the rest of the church as possible is where they put Barbara and her class. Now, we were certainly absolutely crazy. We were reading C.S. Lewis, J.B. Phillips, Keith Miller, but separate. But you see, my role was, my journey was shifting, my focus and the sacred was becoming more and more relevant. And then 
And then a great earth-shattering event happened. In our studies, in my little class, hidden away behind the baptistry, we read Keith Miller. And in one of the Keith Miller books, he talks about a place for adults to go on retreat. At one point in his life, Keith Miller was the very first director of Laity Lodge. Well, he didn't tell me in the book where Laity Lodge was. He just said Texas Hill Country. So now we're talking before cell phones, right? So you call information. I called information in Kerrville. And I said, um, uh, I don't know if you can help me, but I'm looking for a place called Laity Lodge. And the operator at the other end started giggling. And she said, are you kidding? Yes, I love Laity Lodge. I go there all the time. Thank you. So we did. We made reservations for my class to travel to Kerrville, actually to Vanderpool is where you go, to the hill country miles and miles away from Houston. It's the most beautiful retreat center ever. It's called Laity Lodge, built by the HEB Foundation on 1,000 acres of Texas hill country at the heart of the Frio River truly the heart of the creator. At that, at that center, that retreat center, they provide not only summer camps for children, but 50 weekends out of every year, a group can go from anywhere. Any church can go up together and stay in a beautiful lodge, be fed by a cordon bleu cook, and be in the heart of the creator. We went many times, but one summer, they also have summer camps for adults, just like kids go to camp. They have camps for children, adults. I decided I needed to go away by myself and think about what, who I was, what is expected of me, how was I to spend the rest of my life. So one night, lying in my bed there at the lodge, I had a brilliant idea. I thought. I would wait before the sun came up. I would climb the mountain overlooking the Frio River. My plan was to get up there before sunrise and take National Geographic pictures of the sun coming up. So I did. I hiked in the darkness. Not smart. I sat myself down on the edge of the cliff, feet dangling, camera ready. And sure enough, it did. The sun began to come up, I took click, click. And then the feeling of my childhood, of being wrapped in the safety of my willow tree of grace and love just seemed to overwhelm me. And as clearly as I am speaking to you, a voice said to me, Barbara, are you through playing with your life? Am I going crazy? What? What is this? And the voice came again. Are you through playing with your life? I asked you to serve me when you were 18. Now I'm asking you again. I need you in ministry. And in my humanness, 
and I'm a lot like Moses. I came up with the most ridiculous excuses you could ever think of. First, I said, have you not noticed I'm a woman and women are not in ministry? And have you noticed I'm old? I'm too old to go back to school. And did I tell you, do you know I'm divorced? Who wants a divorced preacher? And I'm still a single mom. How would I go to seminary anyway? And the voice, with such gentleness and patience, said, look, Barbara, look down at your feet. Now, I'm sitting on the cliff like this. And it's solid granite. This is hill country. And the voice said, see that little bush that's blooming with white flowers right there? If I can make a bush bloom out of rock, I can make a preacher out of you. Now get up and get busy. Of course, I sat there and I wept. And I thought of my story and the wasted, I thought, years. And I will admit, I had a camera, right? I took a picture of that bush because I knew however I was going to be led, if I was going to surrender to this sacred journey, I'd need a constant reminder of what God had said. If I can make a bush bloom out of a rock, I can make a preacher out of you. And that picture, it has traveled with me. It has been in the office of every church I have ever served, every hospital that I have ever been a chaplain. And retired, sort of. It sits over my desk. I looked at it this morning. A reminder of the sacred journey and re understanding what the container really holds. But, you know, I'm pretty stubborn. I went down the mountain back to the retreat center, and I didn't tell anybody anything. That evening after supper, the director of Laity Lodge came up to me, and he said, what happened to you today? And I said, I guess we better go talk. We went off to a little room, and I told him what had happened. I told him my confusion, my uncertainty, my fears. I didn't even know where to go to church. <laughs> who, who ordains women? How would I go? I'm a mother of three. Seminary? I can't afford that. So this date is 1985. When was the first nudging? 1977. She's slow. 1985. He became my traveling friend from a distance. He gave me lots of advice during the next months. But he gave me one immediate advice. He wrote down a name and a phone number on a piece of paper, and he said, on Monday morning when you get to your lab, you call this Dr. Julian Bird. He's the director of CPE at Memorial Hermann. You go see him this week. So Monday morning when I got to my lab, I called Julian Berg next door, didn't know him from Adam's Lost Cat either. And he said, can you come over right now? Well, I hadn't started any experiments. Sure, I'll go over. And I told him my story. And he said two things to me. You're on a journey. 
and I will walk with you. So the first thing I want you to do is to come Sunday morning to St. Luke's United Methodist Church with my wife and me. And then we'll take it one step at a time. You see, I had heard over and over from childhood that Jesus asked us to follow him. But now in my middle of my life, I finally knew what following him really meant. The sacred journey was within me all along. What I needed was to let go and let God. To walk in trust as Abram did. To walk in faithfulness. To take one step at a time. And one day at a time. Well, you think that's odd. Strangely enough, it, the odd things didn't quit happening. Uh, so we went to church at St. Luke's for the first time on that Sunday. That Friday night, I went with a friend to the Galleria to the movies. Paid my ticket, turned around, and in the line, right behind me, was Dr. Jim Moore. He was the pastor forever at St. Luke's United Methodist Church. Now, I had seen him on Sunday, right? Heard him on Sunday. Well, I'm not shy. So I went up to him, and I said, I'm Barbara Robertson. You don't know me from Adam's Lost Cat, but I've been called in ministry. I don't know what I'm doing, and I was in your church Sunday. And he, before cell phones, you had a little calendar in your pocket, right? whipped out his little calendar, and he said, can you come Wednesday afternoon at 3 o'clock? Well, the rest is pretty much history. I did what the Methodist church requires. You join a church. You're in a church. You are there for a year, and at the end of the year, the council decides whether you have gifts and graces for ministry. With Jim working with me, I taught Sunday school classes. I met some wonderful people. I sang in the choir. I was doing what I'd been called to do one day at a time, one step at a time. But if you're going to minister, you do need to go to seminary, not be just a biochemist, right? How am I going to do that with three children? Well, I'd never noticed across the street from Baylor College of Medicine, right there in the medical center, is a little building. And outside the little building is a sign, Institute of Religion. I'd been working there for four years, right? Never noticed the Institute of Religion. Wonder what in the world it is? Well, originally it was built, I think, for the place to train chaplains right after World War II. But one year before all of this was happening for me, the Quakers had decided to start a seminary on the second floor of the Institute of Religion. They did have a professor on their faculty, Methodist, who taught doctrine and polity. That's all that was required. So I could do science, run across the street, and go to class. Duh. Life was unfolding one step at a time. One of my other questions was the struggle. How do I bridge science, which I am passionate about, and ministry? Well, duh. I'm working in the medical center. I am a medical researcher. I do understand medical research. I can read a chart. Why not be a chaplain? So, 
at the end of that seminary training, I applied at the CPE program at Methodist Hospital, which Julian Bird had moved from Memorial to be the director. Huh? Coincidence? No. And I went two years in the CPE program. I loved it. I was going to be a chaplain forever, but the Methodist Church requires for ordination that you serve in a local church before ordination. So again, kicking and screaming, after my two years of CPE training, I was appointed to my first local church. It happened to be Bear Creek. And I fell in love with being a, a pastor in a local church. The journey just kept unfolding and unfolding. I have served four churches full time since then. I spent six years as chaplain both at Downtown Methodist and I was the only chaplain when first Sugarland opened, Sugarland Methodist. And then I retired the first time, 2008. After I spent two years in Chicago with a daughter who was dying of fourth stage geoblastoma. When I came back home to Texas, they put me to work being an interim minister, and I served 14 churches all over the Texas Annual Conference. From Athens, I was in Athens, I was in Nacogdoches twice, I was all the way down to Lake Jackson, so I've covered our conference pretty well. Big churches, tiny churches, six weeks, one year. The journey is never over. You see, each sacred journey begins at birth and continues throughout our days. Some of us are just a little slower than others than truly intentionally being aware of what is unfolding, what is available, and what is being asked of us. We build a container, but we forget to ask, what was it meant to hold? Throughout my 80 years, I've been accompanied along the journey, even though I paid little attention to my companion. I'm ever grateful that 45 years ago, my beloved little friend, the director of the day school, Ruth Pfeiffer, planted the little seed. She was used of God. She followed me on my journey until her death. When I stood before the church council at St. Luke's for them to decide whether I had the gifts and graces for ministry, she was sitting there. When I first preached my first sermon in a tiny little church all the way in Galveston, she was there. When I preached my first sermon at Bear Creek, she was there. And eventually I was appointed to Bel Air United Methodist Church and I became her pastor. The journey is holy and sacred. I didn't have to walk like Abram, 700 miles on a, or ride on a camel. But I feel really close to old Abe and Sarah. But I like to say the scripture this way. She set out in faith, not knowing where she was going, or even why she was going, except that Yahweh had commanded her. How about you? Where are you on your journey? Find containers, right? What 
do our containers hold? Do I have time to read one thing from Richard Rohr? I love Richard. The last thing he writes in his book, Falling Upward. In the second half of spiritual life, you are not making choices as much as you are being guided, taught, led, which leads to choiceless choices. These are the things you cannot do because of what you have become. Things you do not need to do because they're just not yours to do. And things you absolutely must do because they're your destiny and your deepest desire. Your driving motives are no longer money, success, or approval of others. You have found your sacred dance. And your only specialness is being absolutely ordinary and even choiceless beyond the strong opinions, needs, preferences, and demands of the first half of life. You do not need your visions anymore. You are happily participating in God's vision for you. With that, the wonderful dreaming and the dreamer that were in our early years has morphed into someone else's capital dream for us. We move from the driver's seat to being a happy passenger, one who is still allowed to make helpful suggestions to the driver. We are henceforth a serene disciple, living in our own unique soul as never before, yet paradoxically living within the mind and heart of God and taking our place in the great and general dance. Amen and hallelujah. Um, the last night, Barbara, we watched on um, Prime Video a documentary about Leonard Cohen, about Leonard Cohen's writing of the song Hallelujah, and how over a long period of time um, that song finally found its voice, its life. And a couple of times in the documentary when people were talking about that song being performed, um, they said it was like a church experience. Well, can I add one little tiny thing? Sure. So, speaking of Leonard Cohen, I am an artist, right? When I went to Israel 100 years ago, I took pictures of, there were four pots on a wall of a home, and they were all cracked. And I came back home, and I painted those cracked pots, and it was about the time Leonard's song was coming out. Now, his song says so that the light can come in. But I, in the painting, have the light pouring out of all the cracks because I certainly felt like I was a cracked yeah. pot. And so I have a deep love for Leonard Cohen. I mean, what? So Are much we brothers in, and So much entanglement here. I know. It's just amazing what I wanted to say to the people who are gathered here is that you had a church experience today. That was outstanding. Thank you very much. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday with Stephanie Warfield. <laughs>